This is Power Athlete Radio. With your host, Denny Cage, Professor Booty, and the Luke Summers. And now, pose forward, hips locked, shoulders set, and retract those scapulas. It's time for some knowledge bombs. This week, we welcome Dr. Dan Reardon of the burgeoning genetic testing company, Fitness Genes. As is tradition at Power Athlete, we are constantly striving to introduce you to new ways to empower your performance, and this episode is certainly no exception. Listen in as we dive into a discussion with Dr. Reardon about the benefits of having your genetics tested. As we discover, we are genetically predisposed to respond to different foods in different ways, as well as respond to varying training protocols differently. These two factors being massively influential in our performance, Dan explains how we can manipulate both to excel, all thanks to simple genetic testing. Although this chat turned out to be a long one, it is not without fascinating practical application. We reveal John and Luke's test results and find out just what they're made of, quite literally. Also, we'll give you the details on how to undergo your own genetic testing through fitness genes. This is episode 121. What's happening, Power Athlete Nation? Welcome to another episode of Power Athlete Radio. This is Denny. I'm here with John, Luke, Tex, Callie, and Bobby. And today our special guest is Dr. Dan Reardon from uh, Fitness Genes. Um, Dan, thanks for taking the time to talk some shop with us. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Um, you know what? Maybe we can just kind of get the ball rolling a little bit and you can just kind of explain uh, what you do and uh, kind of the whole process that that involves. Okay, well, we're, uh, we're principally a DNA testing company um, on the face of it, but actually our expertise is in the interpretation of uh, genetic information and genetic variations. So what we do is we um, genetically assess people and we're specifically looking for variations in genes that give us information that allow us to predict how you should best exercise and how you should best eat, all based on what your goals are, but using your DNA as the framework, as well as some overlaying environmental information uh, to essentially give you as efficient as tra- a training and nutrition recommendations as we possibly can. In a nutshell, that's what we do. Awesome. So... Dan, um, you know, I know that Luke and John have both been through this process. And uh, how did you guys meet? And, you know, what uh, what uh, took place after that to get them to the point that they are now, which is questioning their entire genetic makeup? <laughs> uh, Kelly, I'll, I'll jump in on this one. Uh, where it all kind of started was, uh, as I talked about kind of recently, I went out and I visited the guys out at Baylor. And having been there for a couple days, you know, one of the things that kind of struck me interesting was their nutrition recommendations. The nutritionist gets up, the dietitian, and starts talking about, you know, this week you should be putting on some weight. You know, we're upping the carbohydrate. We're doing this. We're trying to get you more protein. And so after she talked about some of the, uh, you know, recommendations and what they wanted to do, I went over and wrapped with her a little bit about, uh, you know, what their nutrition approach was and kind of, you know, who was kind of, you know, 
basically steering that ship, and, you know, she handed me some information. And in it, it talked about, like, a 60% carbohydrate, 25% protein, and a 15% fat uh, macronutrient breakdown, and the approved, uh, you know, protein sources uh, other than, you know, lean meats was uh, Gatorade and muscle milk. And uh, I'm sitting there looking at, like, 60%, you know, 60% caloric load of a guy who's, you know, 300 pounds is eating 6,000 calories, um, that's, uh, you know, almost what, 4,000 calories just from carbohydrate. So, uh, you know, I kind of listened to it. And then I, when I was working with the offensive line guys, I'm sitting there looking at these guys and, um, you know, they're some big, big, strong dudes. And, um, you know, the one of the guys looked at me and he's like, man, uh, how come you don't look like us? I'm like, cause I don't eat like you guys. And, you know, what the other thing kind of struck me a little interesting is you have certain guys there that, you know, are following these nutritional recommendations that are, you know, 6'4", 6'5", 245, 250 pounds that are 4% body fat. And then you got another guy over there who's 6'4", 6'5", 340 pounds at like 35% body fat. And, uh, you know, the thing which was interesting to me is, you know, nutrition and macronutrient breakdowns and being able to prescribe certain things, uh, you know, can't be just blanket. You just can't have a one-size-fits-all and hope that it just kind of gets everybody. And if it is, it's written towards the bell curve. So just looking at these different athletes, I realized that there had to be something different within the genetic makeup that would allow a person maybe to be able to, you know, be more susceptible or be able to digest or tolerate more carbohydrate. And just that kind of got me thinking a little bit about, um, you know, some genetic factors. And just about that time, I came in contact with uh, uh, some of the people from uh, Fitness Genes, and we just ended up starting up a conversation and uh, Dan came down and we hung out and, uh, you know, wrapped a little bit. I kind of posed him with some questions about, you know, performance training and, you know, are there genetic factors of, you know, how much uh, are, you know, obviously uh, nature versus nurture that, you know, you have a certain genetic makeup that you talk about, you know, being able to train past your genetics if you knew about them, being able to match up, you know, carbohydrate and, you know, uh, the ability to, to process fat. And I remember uh, Lauren Brooks um made an interesting comment to me. She's like, you know, I don't do well on a high, higher fat diet. I tend to do better on a lower fat diet. And I just, you know, have run into different athletes that work better on different macronutrient ratios. And so I believe that it's, it's more than just training. I think there's some genetic makeup. And so it kind of led me here and Dan and I've just been uh, kind of brainstorming going back and forth. And um, he's come down to train with us a bunch. And uh, we, we got some genetic testing done uh, as, you know, Luke and I as guinea pigs, and then we kicked it out to the power athlete coaches. And so those of you guys that have your kits and are dragging on them. Uh, yeah. Please back. Dan, can you, um, can you explain how you guys go about doing that genetic testing? Um, you know, I was expecting to send, like, hair follicles and fingernails, but that wasn't the case. So can you explain how you guys go about that and then uh, maybe dive into some of the results that you saw in John and Luke? Yeah, so, sure. Callie, wait, did, did you run to the post office and get your package back? Because you just told me you put a bunch of fingernail clippings in there. <laughs> I had been saving them for months. <laughs> well, so we, we, do, we do saliva testing. Uh, when, we, when we actually first set up our company, we, did, we initially did uh, buckle swabs, which is where you essentially swipe the inside of your cheek. But as the company's grown and progressed, we've been able to now move on to much more advanced technologies. So we actually use one of the most advanced technologies now for collecting saliva samples. Um, and when you collect saliva, what you also get is you get cheek cells within the saliva. So when you do your test, you spit into the tube, and then there's a um, uh, like a buffer that sort of snaps into uh, the saliva that preserves the DNA. 
uh, and it'll preserve the DNA for years so that there's no issues with transporting the sample back to our uh, laboratory. When it gets back to our laboratory, the first thing that happens is we extract the DNA from the saliva. So there's a whole process of DNA extraction. Um, and once the DNA is extracted, uh, there's a huge machine that then layers the DNA in, onto a plate. And it's then from this plate then that we, we run um, assays to uh, establish your, your gene results. So we've essentially built all of our own assays um, so we have a, you know, the, 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 the variations that we look at are the ones that have come from our own research, uh, our own very high-level research with uh, the, 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 the quality of the team, the quality of the scientific team that we, we actually have. And ultimately, we end up with these huge dig digital sheets that have to have, have to have a human eye go over them first. We look for any um, abnormalities that we might find, and then we can sort of delve deeper into you know, just checking the, the quality of the samples and things like that. And ultimately, we end up with uh, your gene results. Uh, and then the gene results go onto our computer system, to the membership system, and then that, that, that gets fed through our genetic model that then starts to distribute your results to you. So that's the process by which we, uh, we do the testing and then ultimately deliver your results. Great. And I, I guess before maybe we talk about the results, I'm just yeah. curious as to why this just kind of popped into my head, but as to why uh, you think this isn't a common practice in, say, like primary care, like by your doctor. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, so a li a li just a little bit of history. I mean, the, the human genome was decoded by about 2003. Uh, there was a big um, human genome project. Um, and so really a lot of the work on the human genome has, has, has been going on since 2003 in terms of trying to get a, a real solid understanding of how we can use the information that gene testing can deliver. Now, you know when, you know when people talk about large data sets? Well, um, approximately, when you consider the large data, approximately 60% of large data is genetic. So we need computer systems and we need uh, computer programs that are actually able to essentially decipher the genetic material and then somehow try and interpret it and understand it. So there's huge, you know, the, the big computer companies around the world, the likes of IBM. IBM built a big system called IBM Watson, which is a billion-dollar cognitive computer system that people are now starting to try and feed in uh, genomic models into um, you know, Microsoft have um, a few uh, products. You, you might have heard Google and Amazon are now competing in the genomic storage market, which is not just storage, it's also ultimately it will be analysis. Pathway Genomics, a big medical testing, uh, genetics testing company, you know, they're, they're doing the same with, the, you know, the way they're building out their computer systems. So it's really, it's only now that we're getting to a point in time where from a, a medical perspective, we can really start to think about using gene information to either predict the likelihood of illness or start to consider screening programs or even look at methods of treatment. Um, so um, in, terms of, in terms of primary care, there would never have been a reason to have been doing gene testing apart from, I mean, there, was, there, there are sort of certain situations. So things like if you're screening families for, for example, the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes, which are the ones which give females an increased risk of ovarian and breast cancer. 
um, if you're screening for genes, um, you know, perhaps that, uh, you know, some of the familial cancers, other familial cancers or um, other, you know, other familial diseases, then, maybe, you know, maybe you would do screening. But in terms of, you know, examining whole genomes, to try and you know give people from the outset genetic information, it's it's something that we've never we haven't really been in a position to do. But there are companies now <clears throat> that are sort of specialising in that and looking to do that. Now, from our perspective, we don't do anything to do with kind of um, sort of anything medical. Um, the reason is that um, anything medical is very tightly controlled by the FDA. So 23andMe, for example, uh, got in trouble a couple of years ago, and they were take their health product was taken off the market because um, they were essentially using the gene testing to give medical recommendations, which the FDA weren't happy about. Uh, they've now gradually been able to bring their uh, medical product back onto the market. Um, but, but, you know, that's been a, a bit of a painful process to do that. Sure. So, so, but for us, fitness genes, what we do is we just focus on the gene variations that can tell us how you should exercise and how you should eat. So we don't get involved in the um the the sort of the the disease type stuff so where where in terms of medical medical practice it's all it's all moving towards um uh sort of proactive medicine rather than reactive medicine so reactive being you react when people get diseases and what all the all the research and time and money is now going into proactive um, um medicine where people proactively look beforehand and predict your likelihood of getting diseases and, you know, and treat them, you know, long before you get them. Um, what we're doing is we're, I guess we're in the proactive stage of management, which is we proactively manage people through diet and nutrition, uh, sorry, diet and exercise to make sure they maintain good body composition or get a good body composition, um, you know, issues of longevity, um, but then also, you know, uh, our roots are based in, you know, uh, muscle hypertrophy, losing body fat, and enhancing sports performance. Okay, so so in terms of proactive um, type of, I don't know, in, integrating proactive uh, nutrition, um, yeah. you know, are you looking for for deficiencies as well in the system? Do you look at things, or or even, um, I guess. Uh, if you have allergies or you're you're more prone to have inflammation due to you know certain foods is that also sort of what you cover uh yeah yes i mean it, it's certainly for for a few things so if i give you some examples uh we look at um lactose intolerance so um lactose or if, if we kind of go go back in time a little bit um Humans were never designed to be lactose tolerant as adults uh, because we would never have consumed sort of milk type products as adults. Uh, and it was the it was the farmers um, X, number, X number of years ago who started to consume the milk of sort of cows, you know, the process of milking cows, etc. But eventually uh, a mutation occurred, which meant that um, uh, we were able to uh, digest lactose, if you like, mm. uh, you know, in, later into life. So the mutation in the LC uh, in the LCT gene or the, in the MEM6 part of the gene um, was something. The mutation actually led us to being able to um, uh, metabolize, digest, whatever you want to call it, uh, lactose. Um, however, the majority of the world's population are intolerant to lactose, um, but not everybody. And there are certainly benefits to certain, you know, to some of the foods that contain lactose. So. If you are able to consume lactose, it's definitely something that you uh, you don't necessarily want to be removing from your diet. 
Um, and what's happened in our current era, if you like, of, of, of health and nutritional management, the problem is people give generic recommendations. So what's the first thing you hear when people talk about losing weight? They'll say, oh, you know, stop consuming dairy products. Um, well, okay, if you stop consuming dairy products and you're not lactose intolerant, you'll essentially make yourself lactose intolerant because, you know, your, your production of lactase will reduce. You'll potentially change your gut, your, your gut flora. So they won't be um, produced. They won't be digesting the, the lactose either. So and then you lose the potential benefits of some of the foods that contain lactose. I mean, for example, you know, if you're if you're able to access really good quality uh, milk or good quality cream, you know, I mean, these are good sources of protein, um, good sources of calcium. There's no reason to, and good sources of fats. There's no reason to remove them from your diet if you don't need to. Mm-hmm. So uh, so lactose is one of the ones that we look at. So Dan, um, let me let me jump in and ask you to make a clarification here. Um, yeah. I think just just to make a distinction, you're, the genetic testing you're you're looking for um, a genetic predisposition to react a certain way to certain things, or yeah. um, it, it sort of provide a glimpse into how your body might behave in a certain situation. Yeah. But, however, is there there's not a there's not necessarily that that true one to one correlation in that it is it is a for sure thing, correct? Or is it is it just a, this is what we've seen through trends, through uh, genetic trends, or is it like 100% you're going to be prone to X, Y, Z? Oh, no, absolutely, 100%. I mean, so for example, um, so uh, again, so perhaps a little bit of science, a gene produces a protein, and a protein has an effect on the body. So the LCT gene uh, leads into the production of the enzyme lactase, and lactase is the enzyme that breaks down lactose. So if you don't produce lactase, then you're not going to be able to digest lactose unless you have good bacteria that are doing that, 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 that are doing the digestion for you. So this gene, for example, the LCT gene, um, in the majority of the world's population is, if, if you are, if it says you are genetically uh, lactose intolerant, then you are lact- you are almost certainly lactose intolerant, or you will be probably after the you know after the age of twenty. Do you have a kind of a just a general idea of how long if you cut out lactase it'll take ch- take for that adjustment? If you how long if you cut out lactose, um, it's 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 really difficult to say. Um, it's, for some people, it can be. I mean. So if you take this, the, the classic, I mean, classically, people will stick to a diet for about four to six weeks. Um, and when they then resume their normal eating, uh, you know, it might be consuming ice cream, uh, putting milk back in their coffee, um, consuming cheese. Um, all of a sudden, they have a whole host of problems. Um, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're consuming these foods and they're, they're having, you know, bowel problems and, you know, they, they're, they're feeling tired and fatigued, you know, and it might be because of the overconsumption of calories and, the, and it's, a response, it's a response to the overconsumption of calories from being in such a calorie deficit for that period of time. Um, but I would say, I would say within, certainly, certainly within sort of four to six weeks is long enough to uh, substantially reduce your lactase outputs on consumption of lactose. Um, and then, what, what we tend to recommend for people that, um, who are lactose tolerant, but they are displaying symptoms of being lactose intolerant, um, we have uh, a couple of systems within our user area 
where we sort of recommend how people can gradually reintroduce lactose back into their diets so that they can, you know, uh, continue to consume lactose-containing products. Because actually, it's it's very difficult to be truly lactose-free. Um, I mean, you know, the amount of lactose in, you know, slimming bars, you know, typical weight loss slimming bars and things like that, it's, it's, it's quite a lot. It's, 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 it's tough to be lactose-free. And even sometimes when you buy in lactose-free products, they're, they're not lactose-free. What they are is they're, they're products that have had lactase added to them. So that's how they make the claim of it being lactose-free. Huh. They're not actually lactose-free. So it's... You so know, it's to neutralize... Yeah. Well, yeah, that's like the yeah. the um, yeah. uh, the milk, you know, the, the for the the milk for people that are lactose intolerant. Yeah. They just add the lactase. Yeah, it. yeah. So, so I think it's so I think we we, we we one of one of the things that we can sometimes do by giving generic recommendations, we actually screw people up, um, and we need to really we need we need to really empower as as professionals, as coaches, as fitness professionals that we have to look at the. The, the ways that we can truly personalize the information we give people. And given that we now have access to gene variations and gene information, we can really start doing that. So you think, uh, actually, I mean, I don't want to go down this uh, rabbit hole of milk because there's such yeah. much more fucking interesting stuff to yeah. deal with. Yeah. But uh, do you think that actually uh, that, that was a positive genetic mutation, that the uh, ability to consume milk past weaning and also to digest the milk of other mammals actually was a positive thing? Uh, totally. I mean, you know, if you want an anecdotal evidence of that, look at the bodybuilders from the 50s and 60s and yeah, 70s. Yeah, the Vince Garanda diet. And all yeah, that. look at those guys. I mean, they were drinking whole milk. You know, sure. they, were, they, weren't, they weren't consuming supplements and things like that. They were, yeah, they, they were steroids. washing down handfuls of Diana Ball with, uh, <laughs> yeah, with yeah. raw milk, which, uh, is, which is actually yeah. the early Arnold Schwarzenegger Vince Garanda diet, where it's like copious amounts of raw milk and handfuls of Diana Exactly, exactly. But, you know, it, it, it had its place. I, I think that, I think that, I mean, put it like this. If, if it wasn't something that, if it wasn't positive for mankind, it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been a, a mutation that would have stuck with the passage of time. Mm-hmm. So it's something that kind of contributed to our survival because it meant we had more food, more foods that we could consume. Sure. And there's no doubt that, I mean, you know, listen, the, the, the supplement market is a 30, 40 billion dollar market. The biggest selling product in the supplement market is whey protein sure. and whey is an extract of milk, right? So, mm-hmm. so it's, it, you know, it's, it's, it's absolutely, um, it's, it was absolutely yeah. something positive. The issues, though, are that there are still people that are lactose intolerant. And just as an aside, look at the massive increase over the last 20 years of people getting um, inflammatory bowel conditions, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease. Um, No one can necessarily pin down the origins of these diseases, right? So people talk about genetics, you know, there might be genetic predispositions. But look at the damage that's containing lactose the damage that you can do consuming foods that contain lactose if you're intolerant to lactose, because that almost certainly will lead to degrees of gut inflammation. And back to what we just said, most foods contain lactose. Well, and also we've also seen this huge, uh, you know, people are so nervous about fermented and like unclean things mm-hmm. that everything's over sterilized. I mean, if you take a look like, um, you know, we'd be interested to do some genetic testing on some like the Maasai warrior and some of, and some of those groups, yeah. you know, because historically African-Americans are usually have some form of lactose intolerance. And so here's a group that survives exclusively on meat, blood, uh, and 
fermented milk they make into a porridge yeah. and you know the fermentation process allows them to digest and yeah. also because the fermentation is the removing of the lactose yeah. and cheese yeah. so it's pretty interesting that these guys consume dairy and yet yeah. you know if you ever see those guys they're you know six 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 seven six eight and they're shredded so they're uh, it, it's pretty interesting and, and you know we run into people all the time at our seminar they talk like oh I'm lactose intolerant I can't have dairy I'm like oh let's make a distinction between fresh dairy and fermented dairy yeah. And, you know, if anything, like, I don't really drink fresh dairy anymore, but fermented dairy, we have, you know, cheese and Greek yogurt yeah. and other things yeah. just because of the, uh, you know, the fermentation and the, yeah. you know, probiotic and yeah. different yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, Dan, so yeah. I, I'm, I'm sure that a lot of uh, high-level athletes and, you know, obviously some uh, normal jamokes like ourselves are, are having this type of testing done, but they're yeah. also comparing and contrasting that with, blood work, which we see done very frequently with high-level athletes. Can you talk about the different snapshots that you'll see um, and how they compare and contrast? Yeah, sure. So, so for example, um, one of the products that we built is we built a testosterone evaluation template where we look at gene variations that give us an indication of the likelihood of you having high or low testosterone levels. Now, so so what we did, so if you think about it, we give we give the the basis of the likelihood of whether you might have high, medium, or low. But what blood work does is blood work will give you at a point in time what that hormonal value is. Now, the problem with blood work, blood, blood work's fine where you're using it over the passage of time. Single point in time, a blood test at a single point in time, apart from in an acute setting, has very little value. Um, so if you're looking at hormones, for example, um, hormones, one blood test um, at a single point in time looking at a hormone is utterly useless um, because it's, you know, your hormones vary and fluctuate so much. Um, so if you're going to take bloods, you know, consistently, so for example, let's say cortisol as an example. If you really want to know what's going on with your cortisol, you need to take probably at least maybe 10 blood tests over the course of a day. Um, you know, so when you wake up, what's going on through the morning, what's going on through the afternoon, what's going on before you go to bed, how does it relate to after training, after you eat, all that sort of stuff, to really know what's going on with with um, with your blood levels. Uh, sorry, with your cortisol, testosterone. I mean, you know, testosterone is so sensitive. Uh, you could literally, you know, you could take a, you could take a, a blood test now, and uh, you know. And I'm sure our testosterone levels, well, whatever they'll be, but, you know, all of a sudden you stick a picture of a naked woman on the screen and all of a sudden our testosterone levels are going to fly up. Again, for some of us, for some of us, yeah. <laughs> or man. Or man. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so, I mean, naked you person. Know, yeah, so, yeah. Person of, na- of clothes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But, uh, so, so when we look at the testosterone screening that you're doing, yeah. like, for example, Luke is a uh, in the pink area, and so he's pink, at the so lowest, low, lowest, lowest, highest, yeah. Okay, so is that actually giving us a genetic predisposition for higher testosterone, or is it actually testing our testosterone? So what we're looking at is we're looking at a selection of gene variations that give information about testosterone production, steroid hormone binding globulins, estrogen receptors, other gene variations that we know have a propensity towards you having a higher level of testosterone naturally. Mm -hmm. Um, So we use that as a predictive tool. I'll give you one, one, again, um, our, our company, we have we have the research and the science, but we also have anecdotal information as well from customers. So to give you an anecdotal um, story from a customer, uh, one of our young customers, um, early twenties, um, 
one of our, just so you know, uh, <laughs> Luke and uh, John are currently comparing their testosterone levels, and uh, we've no, got John I. Propensity for testosterone. Yeah, propensity, yeah. Uh, and, uh, well, somebody in this room has a couple kids, <laughs> so... How's that working out for you? Well, it's killing my testosterone levels. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but so, so, so we had we had a, a young guy, early twenties, and he he did his muscle, he did his fitness genes test, and he did his test score, and it came back as medium. And it's it's actually not very often that we we sort of get people, younger people. I think it's obviously our population is you know we're not we're not talking about the millions yet, so it's you know it's very hard to you know to really give really solid statistical uh, population-based statistical data. But it came back medium. Um, and when I actually I got on the phone with him and we were talking about it, and uh, I was sort of asking him the the typical questions that relate to you know could you have could you be suffering from low testosterone. Um, and to go very long story short, I told him to go to his doctor and to get his testosterone levels checked. Uh, it's not an easy thing to do in the UK, so he ended up having to pay privately to go and get his um, his hormones checked. And his testosterone levels came back quite low. Um, so um, so he then sort of um, uh, uh, got referred to um, a a doctor that specialises in um, hypogonadism. Uh, which is, you know, in, in men, low testosterone production, um, to sort of, you know, look at the process of what he can do to start to increase his testosterone. Now, he did follow the guidance that we gave on the test score, which, you know, is typically um, guidance about, you know, uh, improving body composition, reducing body fat, you know, heavy lifting. Uh, for some people, you know, incorporating vitamin D3, you know, zinc and magnesium. Uh, there might be some evidence for things like fenugreek, uh, blocking the five alpha reductase step, um, you know, all those kinds of things, um, you know, fat intake and whatever. Um, and and this was an example where a model we built was actually a, a very, it was a very useful tool for this guy because it prompted him to start thinking about um, about about his 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 his, his, his own testosterone health. That then led him to get in touch with me. That then led him to go to a doctor. So sure. uh, this is just an example where you know. We, but genetics is is it are the building blocks of what will ultimately be spat out in a blood test. Blood tests are heavily influenced by environment. Kelly, and the, the one thing I think everybody needs to kind of remember too is that there's you know when they say nature versus nurture, what they're talking about is like you know nature obviously being your uh, you know genetic makeup, the you know the proteins, how it all fits, and then based on that, I mean it might be anywhere from forty to fifty percent is your you know what you do to nurture that. Um, you know, like for example. Uh, you might be, you know, have a propensity to high testosterone, but yet because you sleep, uh, you know, three hours a night and yeah, you know, really, work. yeah, like you have a, a super pro-inflammatory diet and, uh, you know, you've not exercised and therefore your body fat's over 30%. I'm fairly sure that a lack of sleep, high body fat and no exercise and a crappy inflammatory diet will kill your testosterone levels. So, uh, Dan, given yeah. me the example you just used, um, yeah. I'm curious as to, I know this isn't your specialty, but I'm curious as to you can make, if you can make behavioral inferences from um, this type of testing. Well, I mean, you can. So the thing with, yeah, it, well, I can give, in fact, I can, I can give you a, a good example. Um, I think, and I, I hope I'm answering your question and giving you this example. Um, they looked at, uh, there was, they were, 
one of the things with us at the moment is we, we do a lot of collaborative work with universities. Uh, so we've just done a really big study with Loughborough University in the United Kingdom. Uh, it's one of the biggest sports universities in the UK. But specifically, the project was to do with obesity and um, obesity-related gen- uh, genetics and gene variations. That's, that aside, um, a few years back, there was a study done that looked at um, testing obese people um, for the FTO gene. So the FTO gene is a gene that uh, the, 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 the variant of it, um, 70% of people who are morbidly obese will have the variant of the FTO gene. So they, wanted, so they wanted to do a study kind of looking at the psychology of knowing this type of information. Now, the cynical person, the cynical person would say that somebody who's very overweight or obese, when they find out they have the mutant copy of the FTO gene, they will use that as an excuse that the reason I'm obese is because of this, therefore, screw it, I'm not even going to bother trying. But that's not actually what happens. What happens is when they find out they have this variant of the FTO gene, they lose the shame of being obese or being overweight, and that prompts them to actually then start to make positive changes to their life to try to lose weight. So actually, you can be empowered by your genes and gene variations. So another example, you know, um, when we talk about um, people um, having endurance tendencies and potentially like metabolic endurance tendencies, um, very overweight people uh, potentially could have decent aero, um, endurance potential because ultimately they store energy very well. And if you're an endurance athlete, you want to be able to store energy well to be able to use it. So we can actually give very positive pieces of um, uh, performance type information to people who otherwise might not ever get good performance information and again it empowers them so it's a, it's 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 about personalization and it's about empowering people in the most positive way then prop that then prompts them to make the changes independently not necessarily by having a coach you know say do this this and this um, because they know that you know fundamentally it's built off their genes their, their dna uh, the more likely to make positive lifestyle changes. Yeah, I mean, um, I guess that's part of all part of your personal feedback loop. But I was more curious as to, for instance, if you're taking, if you're taking uh, a genetic look at um, hormone, mm-hmm. like uh, like hormone pre- predisposed to have high testosterone, low testosterone, whatever, yeah. um, can you? can you infer that uh, certain traits are going to be exhibited in that person's personality due to these, like, these DNA or these genetic predispositions? I think what she's looking for is, like, if uh, you have higher testosterone, yeah. are you going to be more aggressive, more reckless? Alpha. Uh, yeah. Like, more alpha. Yeah. I can't. Just, well, yeah, testosterone as an so, example. So you won't okay. need a book that's like how to become the alpha because yeah. if, you have to, if, yeah. if you have to read a book about how to become an alpha, yeah. you're not. Yeah, I agree. So, yeah, that whole thing with yeah. the becoming the alpha thing, like, yeah. what was it, about a year ago? Yeah. We had a podcast on it. fucking <laughs> retarded. Like, it was, it was so, it was, it was like somebody, like, got into it and just was like, and then you had a bunch of dudes running around, like, trying to be alpha males. I'm yeah. like, you know, I... Thank God I wasn't a bard who tried to hunt me from behind. Like <laughs> well, I think I, I, I think that um, well, first of all, um, it, the, the the best representation of someone who would consider to be ha- have high testosterone levels would be, say, you know, a, a, you know, a big muscular footballer, um, you know, um, you know, 
displaying the sort of the, the dominant behavior and you know hyper 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 stimulated by the need the desire to win um, and you know training beyond points that you know points of pain that no one else can train past no normal person can train past but all of those things are not defined by testosterone um, test you know you could take those some of those athletes and they would have very average levels of testosterone um, you know having having super physiological levels of test naturally in the absence of performance enhancing drugs does not necessarily mean you're going to be uh, like a huge guy um, I can use myself as an example of this um, I'm 6'1 200 pounds uh, well just under 200 pounds so I'm not a particularly big guy but I've got my testosterone levels a few weeks back were 1157 uh, the top end of normal is about thousands so I'm well over normal um, but it's not having any super physiological effects in terms of sports performance or anything like that. So nat naturally high testosterone levels is not necessarily uh, a, a defining factor for, um, you know, creating the so-called alpha male. True. Um, the alpha male is, is uh, I think, I, think I, mean, I remember male, having, Usually it's low testosterone. Yeah. Well, do you remember the conversation we had yeah. where you said that fundamentally, like people like in CrossFit or anything like that, there, there must be something in their past that enables them to... Well, yeah, I always joke that to be good yeah. at CrossFit, you got to be mad at yourself. Yeah. you got to be, like, mad at your parents or try to yeah. like, hurt yourself. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, Callie, when she goes out of CrossFit, is trying to get back at all those kids from third grade. <laughs> so she embodies them, and then she's like, I'm going to get you back to this fucker by hurting myself. So I'm like, Callie, it's okay. Like, third grade was, was difficult for you, but we'll get past it. Uh, no, I, I wrote a blog post about this, and uh, I remember there was a pretty interesting research article I got sent that, they uh, they went and they did uh, actually testosterone and like kind of androgen hormone matching with different guys' personalities mm. and it was actually the guys that the higher testosterone were actually much more agreeable and nicer to be around mm. and that uh, guys that had lower testosterone mm. tend to be more abrasive more dickish or yeah. more what you would think of yeah. it and so my comment was like if you run into a guy who's a total dick mm. there's a good chance that he just has low testosterone and it's a terrible way to go through life yeah. so if he's still get checked maybe you should help him yeah. and instead of being mad at him yeah. just pity him yeah. Because he's got low teeth. Yeah, and uh, that's, just, that's just mind games. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but yeah. but seriously, Dan, um, yeah. you know, I I do I do wonder because uh, you know, given the fact that ninety nine point nine percent of the human genome is it's the same in every human everywhere, right? The genetic makeup is ninety nine point nine percent the same, correct? Mm. Yeah. So we're looking at we're taking we're taking a look at a very very um, like small percentage of our genetic makeup. And I'm curious as to when people are armed with information from the testing, you know, what sort of changes do they really see? How significant are they in terms yeah. of athletic performance or um, health? Yeah, well, I think, uh, it's, I think the thing is, it, that's a number that we have to be very careful with. So 99.99%, as in, if you, if you stand two people side by side, they both generally will develop a heart, they'll both de develop a liver, they'll both develop two lungs, two kidneys, two adrenal glands, blah, 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 blah. Um, but if you stand two people together and look at the differences, the phenotype, the physical differences, um, you know, people are completely different. They look completely different. So that, that small percentage of variation is still a lot of genetic information. Uh, it's, a, it's a mind limited amount of genetic information. Well, do you want to uh, compare Luke and I, and then we can actually see two people and, and compare some genetic makeups? Yeah, on the, on the yeah, muscles. Cool. Yeah. All right. So, 
And guys, we'll uh, we can also post this up on the website so that you guys can see it and kind of go around with it, and so you guys can get an idea. Wow, somebody's proud of their genetic makeup. I'm not Mr. 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 High Right. I think it's very interesting. <laughs> it's like you got a report card back that was like A plus plus. Well, I mean, I really don't need a genetic. Uh, test to give me my own report. But here it is. <laughs> but it never hurts when because, you know, we, we compete and everything. That's what I'm most upset yeah. that you guys drug your feet on getting your stuff done because uh, I wouldn't like to see Callie's. Frankly, I want to see what Callie's testosterone I, score dude, was. I, ju- I just got the testing materials like a couple days ago. And like I said, my mouth hasn't been clean for days, so I don't know. <laughs> I didn't drag my feet on sending it in. I sent that out. But, you know, I'm, what I'm curious is why I'm wearing sunglasses. My genetic is going to, yeah, you're wearing my sunglasses and drinking out of my water bottle for the last three weeks, so it could be my genetic material. And Doc confirmed this for, you, uh, for me, Kelly, with, uh, with you, that he, if uh, they'll either be able to differentiate between your genetics and whoever else's in that slug and so. Yeah, oh, God. stop it. That's not, that's not even funny. Listen, we're and laughing. obviously when yeah, you get, you're laughing, but Kelly laughs at everything. So. When you, when you get my results back, you'll see that genetically I'm, I, there's a lot of things about me that you wish you didn't know. <laughs> They're like, we've never ever seen anybody that had a genetic makeup similar to a muskrat. <laughs> we, actually, we, actually, we actually did have somebody who uh, sent in Three or four failed tests, and each time, <laughs> each time they came in, Sam, Sam so Sam's uh, Dr. Sam Combs, one of one of uh, one of the fitness gene's co-founders. She's PhD geneticist, and um, Sam kept saying to me, Dan, this is not human DNA. I'm sure. All right, so on the very first top one, uh, when you get your muscle genes re- results back, genes or I'm sorry, fitness genes results back. Uh, the very first one that they list up is the gene for caffeine metabolism. Now, Doc, why would uh, the gene for caffeine metabolism, why would that be the very first one on the... Uh... Uh, it was the last one that was released. Okay, yeah. so this is just purely by accident. Yeah, purely. purely okay, purely. so the the gene for cap- uh, caffeine metabolism, you have t- uh, me personally, I'm AA, yeah. which is I have two copies of the fast caffeine metabolizer, yeah. ALL. And, are, and I'm character, characterized as a fast caffeine metabolizer, which is true because I could drink a pot of coffee yeah. and in 10 minutes fall asleep, and I yeah. drink coffee before at night. I've seen it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People yeah. are like, yeah. you're never gonna be able to sleep. I'm like, I'll lay down right here after I pound this pound of coffee or a gallon of coffee. Yeah. And you kind of have to think what's happening there is because you because you metabolize it so quickly, caffeine gets broken down into three chemicals: uh, pyrazanthin, theobromine, and theophylline. And the uh, parazanthin has very similar effects to the caffeine. They cross the blood-brain barrier, uh, attaches to the adenosine receptors in the hypothalamus, um, and then that causes the release of corticotropic-releasing hormone that then stimulates the adrenal, the um, anterior pituitary to release ACTH. ACTH then um, stimulates the adrenal glands, uh, so you get a release of cortisol um, and um, uh adrenaline, noradrenaline, or epinephrine, norepinephrine, and various other things. But when it happens really fast, uh, it, it, get bound, it gets bound quickly, but then it gets dissociated fast as well, so the adenosine reattaches itself, and then that immediately has a sedative effect, mm. and that's essentially, you know, it's essentially you crashing. Mm-hmm. Um, so the significance of knowing that information is really all to do with 
So we're all told that caffeine is good for performance, mm -hmm. but the thing is, um, no one's ever, no one ever looks at the genetic variations between people, you know, relative to caffeine and performance. Sure. Because there are some people that will say, oh yeah, you know, I have caffeine, you know, before I go to the gym, and you know, and yeah, you know, I just do better than when I don't have it. And there's other people that, you know, will not even bother because it just doesn't do anything. And generally, if you're a fast metabolizer of caffeine. Um, there'll be very little performance enhancing effect of, of using caffeine pre Whereas pre on AC. Yeah. So AC, even though you've got a copy of the gene for fast caffeine metabolism, um, really AC, AC and CC have a very normal rate of caffeine metabolism. <laughs> now, one thing I will say is that caffeine metabolism is only enhanced by pollutants. So, for example, your, your AA you'd need to be in the presence of some form of pollutant, now, whether it's environmental pollution, whether it's you know bad ingredients in the pre-workout, whether it's pollutants in coffee. What uh, about butter and MCT oil? <laughs> Don't. <Just because. laughs> That's a fucking pollutant. That ruins coffee. I was thinking Kahlua. Huh. I, I like where your head at. I wonder if we can make a business around putting Kahlua in coffee and selling it to people as a performance yeah, enhancer. Hey, what you need is a big dose of uh, coffee and Kahlua every morning so that the rest of your day is magical. I That's all I needed to hear. That's all a I white, needed. A, a white Russian kind of yeah. <laughs> um, But yeah, so, so, the, so you, you, there needs to be a pollutant because, because essentially what's happening is the, the caffeine metabolism gene uh, produces the enzyme CYP1A2. Uh, CYP1A2 is the metabolizer in the liver of, uh, of caffeine. So anything that stimulates liver enzymes is potentially going to uh, stimulate that enzyme to work faster. Um, in terms of if you're if you carry the the, the normal variation, so, sorry, the normal uh, metabolic um, um, speed, um, uh, generally speaking, pollutants won't have an effect. And there's lots of research to show that. Mm -hmm. But the one thing that does have an effect that can speed up your rate of caffeine metabolism is cruciferous vegetables. Um, so Whereas if you carry the C, the C version of the caffeine allele, you probably would get some performance benefits uh, from using um, uh, caffeine pre-workouts. Uh, just make sure that you haven't consumed vegetables, you know, in sort of three or four hour periods beforehand, and probably don't consume vegetables for a couple of hours after. So I need, eat, I, I need to eat vegetables all day then, huh? Cruciferous uh, vegetables? Yes, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, like yeah. kale, broccoli. Yeah. 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 Brussels sprouts. Brussels yeah. sprouts. But the, the, other, the other significant thing with this as well is, uh, is really is, is, is the way that you time when you when if, if you're a coffee drinker, for example, um, making sure that you're not consuming coffee anywhere near workouts. Um, so you know, probably not even consuming coffee in the mornings. Um, you know, and, and really trying to you know get as much get, get caffeine out of your diet as much as possible. Ugh. What about uh, if, you're, what, if you're either, regardless of your result, or no, uh, just no, me. it's on about the fat fast metabolism. Oh. So, so AA, you so can't drink coffee. I drink a little bit in the morning, uh, a cold coffee. Is that then, that one gallon jug you bring in? Yes, and then uh, <laughs> I don't drink it anymore after uh, Dan and I met. So I don't drink coffees. I used to drink it immediately after workout. Now I drink it like. Uh, in the afternoon, but the problem it's like 100 degrees. So the last thing I want to do is have a real hot cup of coffee yeah. at three o'clock in the afternoon when it's 100 yeah. degrees in here. Thank God we got these Killcliff mm -hmm. ice coffees. Oh my God! Oh, <laughs> uh, we have yeah. I mean, we we can't stop drinking them. Well, the, the, issue, the issue with caffeine with, with caffeine post workout, and this is really for anybody, is that you know whether you're a slow or fast metabolizer, you will get an increase in cortisol mm -hmm. as a result of drinking coffee. After you've worked out, your cortisol levels are higher anyway, sure. and there's really no reason to be pushing them up artificially. You know, they're high in response to exercise. They need to be high in response to exercise, but they don't need to be 
um, exaggerated. So it's just really one of the reasons to, to, to avoid it. I was going to give you just uh, one really interesting bit of information about about this particular gene as well, uh, and this this is this is going on to a health topic. Um, so uh, the BRCA genes are the genes that uh, give females an indication of the uh, potential risks of breast cancer and ovarian cancer. If you carry the variation in the BRCA1 gene, increasing your risk of breast cancer. If you also um, have, uh, if you're also either AC or CC for the CYP1A2 gene, if you drink more than three cups of coffee a day, you reduce your chances of breast cancer by as much as 68%. There you go. Uh, and that's because wow. the CYP1A2 gene is not only to do with caffeine metabolism, it's also to do with the estrogen metabolism as well. So, Dan, I've actually I've actually heard about that BRAC gene. I listened to a podcast yeah. about it recently, yeah. and is it's a fairly new insight, right? Uh, well, I mean... There's, there's been research into the BRCA genes now for sort of 10, 15 years, um, and there's, there's, there's actually companies that all they do is specialise in BRCA gene and BRCA gene variations, um, and you know all of the the, um, the onco- oncology um, science around it. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly, the thing with coffee has been over the last few years. So they've done things like where they've compared you know, giving females caffeine tablets and giving females coffee and then looking at how that alters the the morbidity from breast cancer. Mm. Um, it shows that giving caffeine alone doesn't have the same effects as if you give coffee. So there's other there's other chemicals in coffee, uh, potential chemicals that are affecting the rate of the caffeine metabolism and also the rate of estrogen metabolism that could be having contribute, contributory effects. So even though all our research is focused on the performance enhancing performance related effects or enhancing effects of caffeine. We also do a lot of research around the medical conditions as well, because obviously we like to extract the data from every possible source that we can. Right. So what are what are some other uh, results that we see? What's the next on the list? Uh, ACTN3. This is the speed gene. This gene encodes for a actinine alpha actin three. A protein. Maybe we just let Dan. Tell us what to shit this stuff is. <laughs> so, <laughs> so basically, this is the speed gene. This is the one that is uh, gives you a better, uh, greater baseline of strength and a protective effect against muscle damage and increase in fast twitch muscle fibers. So both uh, John and Luke have our versions for the actin-3 gene. Uh, so actin-3 is essentially produces the protein alpha-actin. And what alpha-actin does, it has structural properties, but... It also has uh, properties where it um, seems to have an effect at uh, signaling fast twitch muscle. So when you look at elite sprinters, elite power athletes, long jumpers, um, you know, sort of a world championship Olympic level, pretty much, I mean, you should never use the words always and never. So I'm not going to say always and never. But the majority of people in in that group will have at least one copy of the R allele for the actin-3 gene. Um, and it seems to be, as I say, that there's there's more fast twitch muscle activation. Um, and the significance of this really is is all to do with um, it's all to do with uh, sort of recovery and uh, and frequency. Um, so we use um, some of the information that we get from um, acting 3G results to be able to give people information about um, how often they should train and. Um, um, uh, and uh, how, how often they should train and how much rest they should be taking during their training sessions as well. So there's with, the, with Actin-3, there's the R version and the X version of the allele. If you carry two copies of the X uh, version of the allele, 
it shows that you have an increased risk from very, very intense exercise of rhabdomyolysis. So um, on that basis, you know that when you're uh, periodizing or constructing, tra constructing training programs for people who are XX, you need to make sure that if they're new to exercise, uh, you do periodize the training very sensibly. Make sure you give them enough rest between training days and make sure you give them enough rest within the training sessions to recover enough to be able to move on to the next set. Um, and also make sure their nutrition is, is right. So uh, just an example of how you can use that type of information to personalize and periodize training programs. So now John has two copies of the R. Yeah. And I have an RX. Yeah. So that indicates that I have a, a what? So on, on a, for, you know, at the end of the day, there's a lot of people out there that will try and bullshit you on, you know, and, and sure, you, you know, my opinion is that if you're RR and you're RX, the fact that you're producing alpha actinin is, you know, there's no, there's, there really is no quantifiable difference, in my opinion, mm -hmm. between the values of alpha actinin in the blood from whether you have two copies or one copy. Okay. So you produce, you produce alpha actinin, therefore you, you know, you are getting, you know, a fairly, fairly reasonable um, anabolic signaling uh, or signaling to the too fast switch muscle. Um, and you know, I, I don't think we, it, it's, it's not, it's not. It would be it would be a little bit absurd for us to try and quantify. So, but would you say that since I have the a copy of the X variation, that I can do something that John can't? Like, what, what can I? What do I got here? What do I got? Like, like X-ray vision. That's like, not, see, like, now we're talking like, language. Could he give himself rhabdomyolysis where I can't? Like, I'm immune to rhabdo. Um, but I, no, nobody's immune to rhabdomyolysis. And to be, to be perfectly honest with you, uh, if we like, if we just like, if, so we're talking about rhabdomyolysis in sport. The people that I know who've suffered from rhabdomyolysis are absolute, they're, they're freaking nutters. Mm -hmm. Like they are nutters. They can, they get to the point where they're in that much pain, you know, from the training session, but yet they find another gear to keep going. Yeah. You know, that's what it takes to get rhabdomyolysis from sport. Mm -hmm. In the world generally, typically the people that get rhabdomyolysis are old people that, you know, before they go to bed, fall on the floor, spend 12 hours on the floor, someone finds them in the morning, and that's just long enough for them to go into rhabdomyolysis and then huh. start to get, you know, myoglobinuria and, uh, you know, the, the uh, ureth um, uh, 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 kidney function, kidney dysfunction, all that sort of stuff. But in sport, uh, for, as a result of sport, it's, it's very, very difficult. So, uh, but what we do know is we do know that people who are XX, um, they tend to represent more the people that get rhabdomyolysis as a result of ridiculous training um, <laughs> as compared to people that can have at least one eye. The next one up is for uh, PPARA, which is the gene for fat burning. Uh, there we have a number of energy sources to draw upon when exercising, depending on how long and how intense the exercise is. The three main uh, three ones are glucose, carbohydrates, and fat. Fat is the most efficiently uh, energy source, and gene encodes for a protein that enables a more efficient switch between burning carbohydrates and burning fats for fuel, and that's obviously that metabolic. Uh, system where you know you can actually transition or transition between carbohydrate and fat depending on the exercise needs. Yes. Yeah. So I think I think the significance of this is really and I, I, I actually actually so we're talking about individual genes at the moment and we're we're talking about individual genes because it's actually much more interesting for your audience to to hear this kind of information. When it actually comes down to the way we deliver the, the trait-based information, it's based on multiple gene interactions. Um, and multiple gene interactions can actually slightly alter outcomes. Um, but just for general interest purposes, um, that's why we're talking about individual genes here at the moment. But the, so the, P, the PPAR alpha gene, 
The significance really is, and again, if we go back to um, generic principles, um, you know, we, we're, we're in an age now where you know everyone, everyone generally will get told, oh, you know, you need to, you know, drop, get rid of your carbohydrates or completely drop your carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. Now, there's no reason for everybody to completely drop the carbohydrates. There's definitely some people that benefit from particularly low carbohydrates, and there's other people that just don't, you know, really don't need to drop the carbohydrates all that much uh, in terms of, you know, when you look at macronutrient ratios. Um, the reason being that if you can efficiently switch the fat metabolism, um, then you, the carbohydrates in your diet are not necessarily going to be significant at, um, at, at sort of reducing your ability to burn body fat. If you don't switch easily, i.e. your body has a much more of a preference to, you know, to you know, really focus on using carbohydrates and fuel, then you're somebody that almost certainly needs to, you know, probably fairly significantly lower uh, your carbohydrate consumption just to try and promote fat oxidation as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you know, it, it's it's training dependent as well. You know, you need to, um, you know, you need to think about, you know, your pre-workout nutrition, your post-workout nutrition, you know, to maximise uh, your periods of, you know, fat loss. You know, thinking about high-intensity interval training and all that sort of stuff. But uh, this is really just as a, if you were going to give a macronutrient framework, that this is the type, this is the type of information that could, you know, really contribute to building a good quality framework. And one of the things that we've found with the people that we've worked with is more often than not, we get people come into us who, I mean, we've had people come to us who've been on like, you know, like less than 10% carbohydrates a day, you know, for, for like three months or six months or something. So, uh, and if we're saying, okay, you know what, you could probably tolerate 35, 40% carbs, we're then in the process where we're having to gradually build up their carbohydrates uh, consumption back again. Because the other problem is when you remove carbohydrates, you, you promote insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, another reason why you have to be very careful in the people that you're selecting to all of a sudden crash lower. Um, so uh, that gradual increase in carbohydrates, you know, gradually, you know, uh, promotes, um, well, you know, you, you're going to almost certainly be more insul insulinogenic. Uh, in that in that uh, early process of, of building up your carbs again, but ultimately, hopefully, you'll get back to what is your your kind of what you're wired for, if you like, um, and then you can be much healthier in the way you uh, um, ensure that you have a better body composition and a better lean body mass. So I'm a GG, which is uh, is more commonly found in elite endurance athletes, would be expected by chance. Yeah. Luke is a CG, and it looks like the CLA is a much more rare one that is for speed and power athletes. Yeah. I mean, the the, the, the so generally with um, with uh, a lot of the genes that we look at, they're genes where they've been part of studies that, or where part of our studies where we've looked at um, kind of overall sort of sporting characteristics as well. Um, so. In terms of the trait models, these genes play big parts in the trait models when we're looking at, you know, power tendencies and strength tendencies or you know, endurance tendencies. But from a, um, from the, the, I personally have a much greater interest in PPAR for its, for the nutritional parts of it mm -hmm. and the, the nutritional recommendations because I think it's much more, it's a much more significant gene um, for the way you can help people with their nutritional. So then based yeah. off of our results, how would you, how should John and I be, what should we be doing differently? Uh, so we, we, John and I have had, we had quite a long chat about yeah. this, didn't we? Um, so, so, so first of all, um, again, 
careful not to give generic information here. So if we give specific information for John. So I know, for example, John trains early in the morning. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so one of the things that we spoke about was how John can gradually start to quite slowly increase his carbohydrate consumption, but focus the carbohydrate consumption around training. So before he goes to bed at night, um, have a carbohydrate, a higher carbohydrate-based meal than perhaps he's used to, mm -hmm. so that when he's getting up in the morning, you know, there's, there's already some digestive carbohydrates, so there's a decent source of energy um, that is going to enhance his performance. And then consuming the carbohydrates then post-workout as well means that you're focused on you're focused on increasing improving your performance, and you're also focused on improving your recovery, mm -hmm. and you're therefore using the carbohydrates at those effective times. Um, and then through the course of the, through the rest of the day, um, over the passage of time, you know, experimenting, putting small amounts of carbohydrates into various meals, and then overall trying to step up to probably a ratio of between 30 and 40 percent um, carbohydrates. But uh, again, because if you've been on, if you've been off carbohydrates for so long, um, then you know it might be that you might not get back up to those levels before you know you might get up to 30 percent and you go to 32 percent, and all of a sudden you're putting on body fat, so mm -hmm. you start to feel tired. Whereas at 30%, you know, you're feeling like a trooper. Um, and again, some anecdotal information, but I know some bodybuilders who followed fairly pretty much carbohydrate-free diets for some time now, like one, two, three years, and haven't put a pound of muscle on. They just haven't put any muscle on. And they're kicking themselves mm -hmm. because they've done like one of our tests and they're like, you know, I, I knew I should have I knew I should have stuck with carbs, but you just get programmed to you know, to, 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 to see some of the common trends. And the common trends make sense, but what you have to remember is they make sense for certain people. Mm -hmm. Like, when people, you know, the fitness world and the sports performance world, everyone's always arguing about which diet's best. And the inventors of these diets, they work, but they work for the people that they work for. Yeah, they work for, right? Yeah. So you don't, you know, I mean, you know, 95% of diets fail full stop. It's, it's huge. So only 5% of diets are ever successful. Um, and we only ever hear about the successful ones. And therefore, you know, you only, we become focused on, on, especially, you know, with people with very loud voices in social media, you know, and they're the ones we then cling to, but they're not necessarily the best ones for us. Dan, um, you know, fine-tuning your diet through this newfound knowledge, um, you know, that aside, I mean, how many environmental factors can sabotage your ability to really optimize that new knowledge, right? So like people with metabolic derangement, hormonal issues, um, you know, adrenal fatigue. I mean, those things to me sound like very, very significant saboteurs of this whole process, right? Well, the thing is, everything you've just described is self-sabotage. Because all of those things you've just described are things where people have, you essentially you inflict them on yourself. So, you know, if you're, I mean, okay, so my, my, I'm a medical doctor by background, you know, and I was, I was a practicing doctor for 10 years. Um, and so it's, it's always very hard for me to talk about things like adrenal fatigue because it's, it's not a recognized medical condition. So I have, to, I have to take the symptoms that people are describing and then think about it, okay, so what is it that you're describing? So assuming that what you mean is overstimulation of the adrenals by perhaps consuming too much caffeine or, you know, things like that, um, I think that we have to remember that, that our, our body is infinitely more intelligent than we are. And it's very difficult for us to... Um, to uh, 
uh, there, there are things that we can do that potentially will sabotage um, you know, our bodies, but our bodies will correct themselves if we present them with the right environments. Mm-hmm. So if you reduce... Go ahead. If you, sorry. No, I was, I was just going to say, say, I, I just gonna say that I totally, I mean, I appreciate the sentiment that you're, you're getting at, but, uh, you know, from our, our background, having worked with people numerous times, mm-hmm. thousands of people over the course of mm-hmm. seminars, um, yeah. what I'm, what I'm basically saying is that you can, you can arm people and I, and I, I understand from a medical standpoint, mm-hmm. these, these are self-sabotaging behaviors, right? Mm-hmm. But, yeah. um, I guess my, my point is that the, like a big hurdle I can already see, and I'm not trying to like, um, you know, say anything negative, but I can yeah. see people thinking that this is the way to optimize their performance, and yet they're doing so many other um, activities and, and uh, incorporating other behaviors outside of this that 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 are going to have such a negative effect that it becomes almost like insignificant if they were to, for instance, uh, start to up their carbohydrate intake or you know um, optimize some of these these biomarkers that you're talking about, right? Well, I think, I, but I think that what we're now getting into is 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 the topic of um, the the importance of performance relative to the importance of longevity mm-hmm. and health. And where I come from is my only interest is um, improved performance with um, uh, improved quality of life and improved health. Um, so, can you, for example, you know, maximise muscle hypertrophy, but yet still be healthy and still be promoting things that are going to hopefully lengthen your life and the answer is yes you can by uh, using genetic information to remove essentially take out all the things that you're doing that don't make any scientific sense and then start to incorporate the things that have some degree of science or some degree of research that means it makes sense and then you know start to just rejig things a little bit i mean you know it's uh, you know, a good example is if we look at, say, sports supplements. Um, I mean, I, I know people that are taking bucket loads on a daily basis of sports supplements. I can, you know, I can pretty much guarantee that probably hardly any of them are having any effect whatsoever. Um, you know, and the point is, I mean, there are certainly there are certainly some um, nutritional ingredients that that are required and will have an effect on people, but not the bucket loads of things that people are using. I use the example of if you, I mean, you know, if you look at guys that made it in the NFL, for example, you know, they didn't grow up on sports supplements. They grew up eating food. Uh, If you look at, you know, professional athletes, you know, most professional athletes aren't using any supplements. You know, they eat food. Um, They don't diet. They train hard. Um, You know, the process of dieting alone is is something that that um, has has an impact negatively on um, our, me- our metabolism. Um, so there's so many there's, for the majority of people, there's so many restorative measures that you have to make, and the way you make those restorative measures is by removing all of the things that don't make any sense and just building on the things that make that make a lot of sense. And and you know, so I mean, I, you know, I'm working with some um, you know some pretty pretty big athletes at the moment and the, the huge chance that they've had to take is me saying you know what you know there's things here that, that it just doesn't make sense and i think we just take it away take it away from your diet you know remove this from your training and let's focus on these things and um you know and and and, and you know you almost have to sort of go back to basics a little bit because if you if you look at say muscle hypertrophy um, go back to the you know the the, the, the era of the, the old bodybuilders you know in the fifties sixties seventies 
Um, you know, these guys were building lots of muscle, but, you know, the only thing that they were doing differently uh, to say bodybuilders today was they were eating a lot more food and they weren't using hardly any supplements. They were using, obviously, anabolic steroids, but, you know, that's, that's no different to what's happening today. Well, they haven't invented the new drugs since 1956. No, they haven't. So, and no. it just so happened that the best drugs that they yeah. invented were the best ones that came out. The first. Exactly. I mean, or if you look so. at all, all of the modern steroids now, they're just generally derivatives of Hannibal. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, so, yeah. Or for cholesterol or testosterone. Yeah. Speaking of hypertrophy, um, did you guys get some genetic testing for that? Uh, yeah. So, we, I mean, in terms of the, the thing with muscle hypertrophy is that muscle hypertrophy is a, is a is a huge topic and it's, there's 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 no there's no one thing that's that's sort of you know that, that, that you know we can say you know this is going to mean you know this is going to happen because muscle hypertrophy is, is a huge model um, to, to interpret one of the genes that we test for though is the myostatin gene and variations in the myostatin gene so um myostatin is a negative regulator of skeletal muscle growth um, and there's a few different gene variations that uh, that we test for. The most rare gene variation is one that really hasn't been found in that many humans, actually. But it's the one that uh, theoretically would lead to um, uncontrolled uh, skeletal muscle growth. So if you look at, for example, uh, the, the, the blue bull or the uh, Pierre Montanese um, uh, bull, they're examples of myostatin deficient um, uh, cows or bulls where they get something called double muscling, which is where they get essentially muscle on muscle because they've got unregulated skeletal muscle growth. Did you see the set uh, of testicles on this bull? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, every time I set a picture, I'm like, God damn it. Yeah, you can post that. Uh, but a really, a, a, a really good example, a, a good animal example of, uh, of the significance of the myostatin gene. Um, do, do you guys know that the, the dog whippets. Uh, yeah. So, so whippets. Obviously, whippets are used for for, uh, for racing. And um, if you have if you have a whippet which doesn't have any gene variations for the myostatin gene, uh, it's generally not very good at uh, racing. If you have a, a whippet that has two copies of the myostatin variation, it's actually called something. It's something called a bullhead because it ends up as a really wide-faced, wide whippet, and that's useless as well. If you have a whippet that has one copy of the myostatin variation and one normal copy, they're generally the whippets that uh, win all the races. So uh, being heterozygous for the myostatin gene in whippets, and also in racehorses, is, is, uh, is positive for a performance. Now in humans, um, as I say, with the very rare variation, there's very few reported cases. Uh, the most famous case was uh, a, guy, a young lad called Liam Poistra. Um, and Liam Poistra was, I think he was Russian, either Russian or, or, or Eastern European. Um, and at a very young age, he had, uh, in terms of when you compared him to people, his own age, to, to people his own age, when he was three years old, he had the strength of like an eight-year-old. And he was able to do the same number of pull-ups as an eight-year-old. And, you know, he had a, a ridiculously low body fat and all, and all these sort of things. So there's the potential that that very rare variation uh, leads to strength-related um, uh, uh, um, benefits as well as body composition benefits. When you look at the less rare variation, which is the K153R variation, um, uh, there's studies that show that in females, females that carry this variation have a 60% greater response to resistance training compared to females that don't. And we actually, uh, we actually uh, gene tested a girl who, um, she... In 2011, she uh, decided she wanted to be a powerlifter. 
Um, so she'd she'd been she'd you know she'd been she'd sort of, she was a gymnast growing up, um, and she um, she decided she wanted to be a powerlifter. And within twelve months, she was world champion. And interestingly, we, we gene tested her last year, and she has uh, two copies of the myostatin variation um, uh, for the for the, the less rare one, which is even though it's less rare, it's still hardly anyone has it. Um, oh, so she was an RR. She was an RR, yeah. Well, yeah. Um, so, um, so yeah. So, so there were definitely um, there, there, you know, there were definitely genes that uh, research as as we research more and more. We're going to find play a part in 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 muscle hypertrophy, but the the issue is, I mean, I'm sure you've probably all heard about companies relief releasing myostatin inhibiting supplements and things like that. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem with that is that myostatin is not the only negative regulator of skeletal muscle. So, if you knock out myostatin, there's the potential of regulation of other negative um, negative regulators as well. So, it's 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 kind of a, it's a bit of a, a bit of a gray area. Um, but in terms of genes around muscle hypertrophy, uh, there's a whole host of genes that we test for that, we, uh, that when, we, when we look at sort of the, the process of muscle hypertrophy, where we create predictions on how people can best um, optimize how fast, uh, well, the efficiency they build muscle by looking at, so for example, time and detention. Um, when you break down time and detention and the components of time and detention, um, you can look at the gene variations around some of the specific components of that. And then when you optimize those components uh, and you enhance people's overall, um, the overall uh, benefits they get from time of detention, you can potentially enhance hypertrophy. So there's a, there's a ton of stuff. All right. So for the next one, we have... The endurance gene. Yeah, the ACE gene. Uh, okay. So um, the ACE gene is, uh, is, is interesting. Uh, uh, ACE stands for angiotensin converting enzyme. Um, it's part of a big system in the body that, uh, you know, it, it's kind of it's kind of a connection between the lungs, the kidneys, blood pressure, sodium potassium regulation, the the um, renin angiotensin system. There's a whole whole big process in the body that uh, ACE is to do with. But um, ACE is also a gene that's been studied in athletes. And there's two variations of the ACE gene that we test, that we uh, uh, analyze for. There's the I version and the D version. Um, and it's the I version that seems to give people a, uh, a, an advantage when it comes to endurance-related sports. So Malik... <laughs> I have no, no IG. <laughs> so so, there's, so there's, um, there's studies that have been carried out where they looked at, for example... Um, Climbers, mountain climbers, and people that are set a center, you know, quite um, high, um, high levels. And generally speaking, mo- most people, um, if you don't carry at least one I version of the ACE, very, um, ACE gene, um, it's very difficult for you to ascend to above, above eight thousand feet. And the reason is that unless you unless you have at least one copy of the I version of the allele. Uh, you don't function well in oxygen rest- in oxygen restricted states, um, hence why uh, uh, high altitudes. Uh, generally speaking, you, you, you can't function at high, very well at high altitudes. Um, so the I version is linked to um, endurance capabilities. The D, whereas if you don't carry a copy of the um, of the I version, so for example, if you're DD, uh, that's generally much more represented in athletes that do shorter burst activities, so strength, power. Uh, you know, uh, powerlifters, mm-hmm. um, things like that. 
Um, and it seems there seems to be a, um, whereas perhaps with the IL there's, there's more of a tendency to uh, activation of slow twitch muscle, uh, there isn't that same propensity for the DDs. So for the listeners, John is a DD, has Shocker. absolutely no propensity for slow twitch support, whereas <laughs> I contain an I and a D, which means I get the best of both worlds and I'm fucking elite. Yeah. Right? Elite. I think that's what it means. That's what it says. You're fucking elite. <laughs> you, 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 you can keep all that noise. I don't want to ever go to 8,000 feet. <laughs> uh, the next one we have is the PGC-1A, which is the gene for aerobic capacity. Yeah, so this is... this is um, So we have we have um, big collections of genes, like I say, that essentially build into the endurance and aerobic capacity type model. Uh, this is one of the genes that really um, enhances that model. Uh, and again, it's uh, the more of the propensity towards slow twitch muscle activation rather than fast twitch, uh, and also increased likelihood of being able to improve your VA2 max. Um, so generally people that have um, the GG versions of this gene um, have a um, uh, uh, better um, capability of increasing their VA2 max as people who are uh, the other variations SS. Right. Well, John and I and GG, we are the same on this one. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. that's good. It means we're both elite endurance athletes yeah. as, as it pertains to GC, yeah. GC1A. Uh, for the next one, we have the, uh, this looks like an interleukin 15RA, which yeah. would be a uh, receptor A, which would be the gene for muscle volume. Yeah. And what should go with that one? Yeah. So, so the, the, the interesting thing here is that there are people out there that, um, and I'm sure your listeners, there'll be some of your listeners that can testify to this as well. Some people can build muscle, but they just don't get strong with it. Mm-hmm. Whereas there are other people that, that build muscle and they, they get strong at the same time. Um, and there's obviously, you know, there's a number of gene variations that contribute to this, but one of the gene variations that we look at that uh, can give a little bit of information about this and the reasons for this is interleukin 15 receptor alpha. So what you tend to find is that people that have um, two copies of the um, the uh, let me just in fact let me just check the screen on this because sure, uh, so your AA that's right um, I'm AA uh, and your AC yep. so, okay so so John's so John's AC uh, so what that means is that um, when John is get when John's get um, sort of muscles are growing and the hypertrophy. There's essentially two ways that muscle can muscles can hypertrophy. They can hypertrophy through um, laying down of new, new myofibrils, and so you get um, uh, you know muscle muscle uh, um, myofibrillar growth. Um, but also you can you can get an increase in the volume uh, within muscle cells as well. So you can get uh, yeah sort of cytoplasmic or you know, um, increase in sort of the sarcomeres. Um, so it's essentially cytoplasmic growth. Um, so. You carry uh, copies of the uh, of the gene variation, which means that when you put on muscle, um, you also generally um, get strong at the same time. Um, so you don't you don't like if you were looking at say the way you periodize your training. Um, people that don't necessarily get strong as they build muscle, I mean, because that's not a good thing, right? Yeah. If you build <laughs> you build in muscle and you're not building strength at the same time, yeah, you know, there is going to be a knock on effect to that that isn't good. So for those types of people, you know, you really want to make sure that as part of their training, you periodize in good periods of strength training. Whereas for the people that um, uh, people that um, 
don't have, so people like me, uh, where I, I don't have the variations that basically I, when I build muscle, I just don't get strong. So the only way I can get strong is by incorporating strength training. And even then, you know, I don't ever really, you know, get massive sort of strength gains. Um, so, um, yeah. And, and your result AA would mean so your AA. So you, so well, actually, let, 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 let me ask you: when you when you when you build muscle, uh, well, have you ever done a bodybuilding program before? Uh, yes, yes. And what happened when you did that? I got well. First off, it was also paired up with an extremely hypercaloric diet. Yeah. Uh, put on a ton of weight and got strong, much stronger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so with so with your variations, you would expect that. Uh, so your so your AA, so you would expect to be able to um, uh, build muscle, and at the same time, mm-hmm. uh, you would expect to be able to um, that, you, that you'll get some uh, strength increases as well. Whereas with me, I'm the opposite. Hmm. Cool. Nice. I'm getting jacked. <laughs> All right. The next one we have is a, a UCP two, which is uh, has to deal with the gene for metabolism. Yeah, so, so um, again, we, we're talking about individual genes, and, and we don't work based on individual yeah. genes, but it, just some interesting bits of information. So uh, you're, you've, you've heard people talk about um, having fast metabolisms and slow metabolisms, right? Mm-hmm. But actually, when people talk about fast metabolism, what they actually mean is they need an inefficient metabolism. Mm. That is that the foods that they're consuming they're not storing as energy, they're essentially losing as heat. Because the UCP genes, or the uncoupling genes, it's a, it's a, it's a reaction that occurs on the mitochondria that essentially converts, um, converts energy into stored energy, or converts sort of calories into stored energy. Um, and um, so if you're not storing energy, uh, i.e. you're not you know, storing it in fat or in muscle or anything like that, uh, and you're losing it as heat, uh, your metabolism's inefficient. Whereas if you have an efficient metabolism um, for the foods that you consume, you're going you're gonna to store them as energy. Um, so, for example, uh, you, Luke, you carry uh, the VV versions, VV, uh, which means that you're what we, what general people would deem a slow have a to have a slow metabolism. Uh-huh. But what you actually have is an efficient metabolism, which means the food I eat, I use as energy. You use you store it as energy. Yeah. yeah. So VV. that, but, but that VV. VV. So that means for someone like you, when you consider dieting calories are important because if you over consume calories you're not going to lose body fat (laughs) yeah whereas uh for example um well and and really that would be the same with you as well yeah if you even though your av av would still tend to represent a more normal sort of metabolic uh, Mm -hmm. metabolic rate so it's the same thing with you that when you're dieting you still need to think about um, calorie if you over, over calories if you over consume calories mm-hmm. it's going to be difficult to lose body fat um i'm aa which means that i have an inefficient metabolism um and generally speaking uh for me um you know calorie consumption isn't that reflective of uh, of, of my ability to gain weight or lose weight okay um so um so that you would be the the proverbial hard gainer or you'd have it. I could eat all yeah. day and never gain a pound. Yeah, okay. yeah, potentially. <laughs> yeah, and 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 it's and it's really important uh, to kind of you know to sit these people out because it can be very disheartening for them. Mm-hmm. You know what you're saying: eat more, eat more, eat more, and all that happens is they end up eating loads and feeling pretty shitty. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And actually, these are the people where you actually really need to take a much harder, solid look at their training. Yeah, the trainers uh, have a bigger influence exactly. on their ability. It, it will, and, they're, and, they're, and they're pre and post workout nutrition. Okay. The times where you know the, the energy you're giving them to train, and then the energy you're giving them to repair. That they're things to really focus on. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Uh, for the next one, we have a lactose intolerance gene. Uh, yeah, so they're the ones that we talked about earlier. Yeah. So uh, I'm TT, which means I'm lactose tolerant. Yeah. And Luke is. I believe I'm TT as well. Luke yeah. or TT, so we can crush their. That's why we've been drinking milk in 110 degree weather, a la Ron Burgundy. Oh, <laughs> milk was a bad choice. Uh, okay, so this is the one that I, I think is the funniest of all of the genes that we tested. Yeah. The FTO gene, which for those of you guys that are plugged in know they were able to assess a gene yeah. that gave you a risk for obesity yeah. by uh, a mechanism where your body won't sense that it's full. I think it's through like uh, releasing of like um, granulating. Yeah. So uh, I am TT, which means that I have two copies of the normal obesity gene, which would make sense because I eat and I get full and then I'm like, oh, I can't eat anymore. Whereas Luke, on the other hand, is a T, and which makes total sense because Luke Summers is quite possibly the most impressive eater. Oh, thank you. I've ever been thank around. You. Yay! <laughs> and anybody here on this podcast, including those coaches, know Luke can not only fucking destroy food, but he can do it at a rate which I've never seen anybody do. And enjoy it. I mean, uh, we did a, a an eating challenge in Utah. Uh, this is like early on when Luke and I first met. We went to Utah to uh, for a seminar, and there was a 12-egg omelet, uh, pound of hash browns, uh, like 32 ounces of milk. I mean, it was a fucking mess of food, and he crushed it in like 12 minutes and was like, anything else? And I literally couldn't even get through my omelet. I'm like, I'm so full. And uh, But he is impressive. Now is, that, now, is that indicative, the AT, could that be indicative of – or my ability to do that, let's say. Like eat like challenge. seven bags of chips yeah, in my house. Or, yeah, like you said, there's all sorts of mechanisms, I'm sure, at play here. Yeah. So, so the most significant thing about having a T variation, sorry, an A variation, is the tendency to overeat. Because what you're describing there is overeating. Oh, 100%. Right. So, so, so we were talking about it exactly. this morning. Yeah, exactly. So it's, yeah. it's He'll come over, like, I told you this, like, like we'll, like, invite, uh, like, people over to the house, and my wife, if she knows Luke will coming, yeah. is coming, we'll go out and buy, like, seven times the normal amount of food, because <laughs> really? she's, like, my wife's, like, big thing is, like, well, we don't ever want to run out of food, yeah, she's, yeah. like, well, Luke's coming, so come on with all, oh, what you, you buy all this food for? She's, like, well, Luke's coming, I'm, like, <laughs> did you guys realize that one day, like, she got just, kept getting normal, um, normal amounts of food, and then I didn't make it one weekend or something, you're, like, where's all, why is there so much left on this? <laughs> yeah, like, she's, like, she's, like, why did we make, like, seven pounds of this? I'm, like, well, Luke didn't show. She's, like, oh, it's <laughs> impressive. Even. Yeah, but this is, this is important because, um, again, if, let's say, for example, you're, you know, you're looking at how you, um, sort of, you know, program people's diets, mm -hmm. if, you know, Especially in, in, in sports performance, I mean, the last thing you want to do is you want, you know, if you're a footballer or a, a basketball player or athlete, whatever, you don't want people gaining weight unnecessarily. Sure. And if you give them the free reign to just have high, you know, really calorie dense foods and, they over, and they're overeating them, then it's not going to enhance their performance by nature of the, the change in their body composition. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for example, at the, at the beginning, John was talking about it at, um, at Baylor when they were asked, when there was the guys asking him, why do you look like you do? And then he was looking at them and they're on exactly the same diets. You know, if you've got people with um, these, these, these variations and, you know, you're giving them masses of amounts of calories uh, and they're, they're equivalent calories to the person sat next to them, um, you know, and they're essentially overeating 
um, their performance will never improve because their body composition is never going to improve. Right, they won't allow them to. Yeah, allow them to, yeah. Um, but you also need to know the people that you can feed high, you know, high amounts of calories to and that it's not going to have any detrimental effect. Um, you know, if, uh, you know, for example, if someone said to me, you know, Dan, you, you only have to eat one meal a day. You can eat a 1,500, 2,000 calorie meal, just one a day, and that's all you need to do. And, you're, you know, your body composition will be fine. Everything will be fine. If someone said that to me, I'd be really happy. Me too. I'd be so happy. Fuck, wouldn't that be nice only to eat one meal a day? Yeah. You know, get on with the rest of my day, not not think about food. Just you know, I think it'd be amazing. Mm-hmm. And that's where the research is going. It's it's going to go to the point where we can where we can say to people, do you know what? All you need to do is this, and you're yeah. good. You know, and that's 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 essentially where we're we're taking things. And this to. is the starting point, right? This, this is, is the gateway. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I guess what's, what's super he's cool genetic about? hacking it. <laughs> he's genome, genome, hashtag, genome hacking it. Hashtag genome hacking. Yeah, yeah right. genome hacking. Uh, uh, but, yeah. So what we, I think, you know, what John and I committed to do just a couple of days ago is, you know, take a look at these results and work with you to, to tailor some exactly. something to, to follow for yeah. six weeks instead yeah. of twenty-two. Yeah. Uh, maybe six, twelve yeah. weeks and, and see where it takes us. Yeah, definitely. You know? yeah, yeah, we should definitely do that. Yeah, we, we talked about it with, like, uh, like sets and reps and trying to volume and training and kind of how it is. Because on this, he makes, uh, if you go up to uh, up blueprint to the top, there's a blueprint that you can hit where on the blueprint. blueprint. So these are obviously the results. And then the doc goes through and gives you some training strategies. Uh, for me, on the frequency as an advanced lifter, which I'm pretty sure I'll take the advanced one. Advanced in age, uh, you should aim to hit each muscle group about twice per week. An example would be four day upper lower body split, a push pull leg split, where each muscle group gets trained at least once every third or fourth day. Uh, and then he makes volume recommendation. I am a low volume guy, which puts me at 16 to 22 sets per workout with like eight to 15 reps with a 90 to for like minute and a half to two minute work to rest uh, work. And then he also lists tempo, which is like, uh, you know, for me, it's basically move the weight as fast as possible at all times, which we figured out long ago. And um, because of my genetic makeup, uh, periodization is not really as important. And then um, for me with, uh, you know, I need to do some form of hit training and involved with some form of active recovery work um, is pretty much what he's recommended for me. Whereas Luke, by contrast, is somewhere in like 16 to 32 sets, 12 to 15 reps. So he's a high volume guy and he uh, uh, gets less frequent work rate. Yeah. So he has a less uh, rest or rest between sets. He also has a uh, compensatory acceleration prescription for bar speed and he actually then I'd be more sensitive to switching stimulus or periodizing my training. Well, yeah, he, he needs to periodize his training a little bit more. Um, whereas I think I have a little more training frequency, uh, you know, because of the recovery deal where I know. And then also there's a hit in cardio recommendation too. So pretty interesting. And then uh, if you scroll down a little bit. The significance, just so you know, of the, the hits in the cardio is is this is more so this is perhaps a little bit more geared towards the the, the general pop the general yeah population. yeah so fitness yeah, no, this, yeah. Is yeah. Yeah. this is yeah i was going to say and the, re, and the significance of this is if you have a tendency to store body fat for example um cardio can be a very useful tool or it can be detrimental mm-hmm. so um, a, a, a small amount of cardio 
can be incredibly useful. Like three days a week. Just yeah. like, I mean, we, we talk exactly. about this, like yeah. just being able to do active recovery exactly. days, mm-hmm. like exactly. 30 to 45 and minutes, that was absolutely like 60, 70% yeah. of your, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. target heart rate, yeah. just getting in. I mean, yeah. I disguise it on field strong, the power athlete, yeah. Jack street, all this yeah. is active recovery yeah. work. Yeah. But it's basically, it's uh, increased my, mitochondrial density, yeah. cell yeah. volumization. Yeah. I mean, it's just building an aerobic yeah. base, yeah. which uh, was, it has always been talked about. I mean, you can go through super training to look and talk about all these different, you know, uh, sports scientists talking about building an aerobic base. And then they're about 12 or 12 years ago, everybody started shitting on that. And everybody's like, ah, oh, fuck that, you know, and you get into more of a concurrent training. But I definitely think there's a case to be able to do some conditioning. And that was probably one of my biggest failures when we did our 22-week challenge, which was the hypertrophy program. Yeah. Uh, bodybuilding yeah. uh, and and hypercaloric is I did not I did little to no cardio. He didn't. Uh, when he said little, he meant none. No, no, like tying my shoes. Uh, his <laughs> cardio was walking to and from the uh, out of the gym, whereas I did uh, three mm-hmm. to four days a week of thirty to forty five minutes. Yeah, but your your objective was also to to lose weight. Where but I ended up putting on like ten pounds of muscle or something yeah. crazy, and we um, it, it was interesting. I was uh, gaining muscle and getting stronger when I was doing the cardio, which made no fucking sense to me uh, in terms of like, you know, in terms of like, you know, what we know is strength conditioning that, you know, you start talking about, you know, conversion of uh, fast switch, slow switch muscle yeah. fibers and yeah. you look at it. But at the end of the day, uh, when I created a bigger aerobic base yeah. and, I, and, yeah. and I got like in terms of better cardiovascular yeah. shape, my fucking squat went through the roof yeah. and all my lifts went through the roof. Yeah. And then when we got off the program, yeah. I stopped doing it yeah. and I watched all my lifts come down. Yeah. But, but you can, I mean, so for example, when you look at muscle hypertrophy, so one of the contributing factors to muscle hypertrophy is, uh, or when you look at, um, say, time of attention, is also the oxygen requirements. So if you can, if you can um, push your um, your oxygen use higher, then potentially that has an effect on the metabolic stress that you apply, uh, whether you increase it or reduce it um, in the sort of in the periods where you know you're you know, you, you know you're applying time with attention principles. So um, you could you know. Uh, VO2 max, changes in VO2 max, it can have a very positive effect on hypertrophy and strength increases for some people. Mm-hmm. Other people, it will have little to no effect. So, you know, no, I, I mean, I, I had never, I, I, I had always hated the idea. Just the word cardio is like, to me, like fucking packaged up with core. Yeah. Like fucking, it's kind of like you, you made a joke easily uh, earlier that we've been saying for years, yeah. like uh, athletes lift weights, they train, and they eat yeah. like other people like diet and exercise yeah. like like the, to me diet and exercise was like the civvies the the civilians whereas like <laughs> athletes like you eat you train yeah. you lift weights and yeah. you fucking bang do your job and you yeah. do your job yeah. so uh for me like i just always looked at it but uh when we got into the uh 22 jack street i knew i needed to create some form of caloric deficit yeah. to really get where i need to yeah. go which yeah. i was you know which was uh what 10 percent weight loss and um, I know I needed to do it. So I was like, well, shit, I'll just kind of go back to some of the classic bodybuilding stuff. And I watched all of my lifts go through the fucking roof. And I was mm-hmm. like, the only thing which was hard is uh, <laughs> having to mentally get on that fucking machine and like pedal and ride or like, you know, the stair step stepper. Uh, yeah, like Callie and I would be on this step mill. And I just wanted to literally like cut my wrist. So it's pretty hard. I mean, Callie was a big step mill fan. Huge step mill fan. Uh, Callie had a personal conflict going on with the step queen. Uh, we were at, <laughs> when we were training at the 12, there was a gal in there who, um, crushed, 
she literally would set the thing on the highest level and sprint up it. Like she could have sprinted up Mount Everest and bound around. And she was, it was unreal. Like she was like dancing on it, going sideways up and down. You'll have to remind me what was my personal conflict with her. <laughs> that you wanted to be her or be with her. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, I thought I thought at one point you wanted to wear her skin, but uh, no, it, 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 it was like a like a, a Wild Bill style. Uh, no, it, I mean we. So Kelly and I would go in there. We get on the step mill. And, like, we're on, like, level, I don't know, two or three, just kind of treading along. And this chick's on, like, 25, sprinting past us. Doing and I remember being, like, twirls. this broad. So Callie was actually really friendly. I tried to push her off it every time <laughs> I saw her. Uh, I, this is, I mean, this has just been such a super cool uh, learning experience because I think the one of the more profound things you said earlier was just that, like, we can base everything now in, in science. We're at a point now where this stuff is so accessible. This like this, the, the testing is so accessible that people can stop making like quote unquote educated guesses or uh, observational science type yeah. work. And they can really just get down to the nuts and bolts of, of uh, what kind of uh, training is going to be effective. That's right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, that's, that's absolutely the, the stage that we're at now. And, and, and it's 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 incredibly interesting, you know, kind of where it's heading as well. I mean, we're 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 now, as mentioned earlier, we're doing a lot of um, collaborative work with universities, um, you know, big universities, and we've got some amazing projects um, on the go. Um, and even internally within within the company, we've got some really really great research projects, you know. And we're hoping that we can we're hoping to wait, we're hoping to answer some really interesting questions. Mm-hmm. The one one of the questions that we're really um, looking to answer at the moment is, what is it that actually makes um, a, 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 when when you look you know who are going to be the best athletes um, in school, you know, and and you know they come out of school and you know they get through all the training camps and the you know the drafts and into the you know nfl or whatever and 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 it's 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 always predictable you know you can look at those people and you know who they're going to be uh but yet they you know they just eat food and they train hard and they eventually get there and um, whereas there's other people that don't and they do everything they possibly can to try and get there training wise nutrition wise supplement wise and they never do um, and we'd really like to start to try and figure out those answers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't say too much about it at the moment, but we think we've made a bit of a breakthrough on something. Um, that... And this is the objective would be to just crush young children's dreams and let them know out no. of the gate that they're not going to make it. <laughs> well, not really. No, it's it's really more. It's you know, it's really more to do with um, um... empowering them. No, this isn't to do with children. This is adults. Oh, okay. So, so this is about if, if you've got adults that you know, they want to get in shape or they want to become better at sports. Um, how they're making the selection to decide what they should do is essentially the issue at the moment. Because if you've, let's say, for example, you've got, you've got somebody who looks at, they look at person X and they say, I'm going to do what person X does. And what person right. X does is eat loads of food, trains really hard, and they never get anywhere. But then they then go and follow person Y. And what person Y does is eat moderate amount of food, you know, trains hard, takes a load of supplements, uh, and then they get there. Um, how do you decide which person you should follow? And what we're looking to do now is to figure out um, some of the answers to that, to oh, that, I guess to that question. Um, and we've got some very, very good hypotheses around it. Um, yeah. One, you know, one which has been quite recent that we're just about to start um, a research project in. Um, but yeah, so so the, the way this is all advancing is uh, is pretty incredible. 
So Dan, how can people find out information on um, fitness genes? Um, they can, a number of ways. Um, you can go to fitnessgenes.com. Um, and on fitnessgenes.com, um, we have um, all the information on there about how the science works and, uh, and all that sort of stuff. Um, you can go onto our sort of social media pages. So we have uh, facebook.com forward slash fitnessgenes, um, Twitter forward slash fitnessgenes. Uh, we've got Instagram. We've got the fitnessgenes account on Instagram. Um, if you want some more specific information about, so for example, um, how uh, John and I are working together, um, you can go on to fitnessgenes.com forward, forward slash powerathlete. Um, and there's going to be, uh, and you'll go on there and you'll see some really good information about um, how we're working with the guys down here. Um, because we're all about um, collab- collaborating with, um, you know, with, with, with uh, beasts, beasts in the gym. That's what we're into. You know what's, we provide the science and they provide the beastliness. What's interesting is uh, we get hit up quite a bit on products of varying, varying claims. And, uh, but I'd say very few actually send their CEO down to the gym to fucking bang weights with us and yeah. get under a safety squat bar and fold. <laughs> like we, we banged some serious weights this morning. It's awesome to have Dan out. And, you know, uh, when we first met with, uh, with Dan, it, I think we had scheduled an hour or so. Yeah. And then like literally four and a half, hours, four and later. And a half <laughs> five hours later, I mean, just such a fruitful conversation. I walked, I just walked by it a couple of times cause I was on a couple of different calls and I'm like, you guys are still fucking talking. Like we got to get Dan on podcast. This is going to be a good one. So. Yeah. No, it was good. Uh, uh, we, we did a little, uh, uh, safety bar squat today with some chains on it. And uh, I don't know if Dan has ever uh, noticed or felt his having that lock in his upper back in the squat, but it was pretty awesome to watch him come out of the bottom and watch the safety squat pull him forward, and then all of a sudden see that light go on and then figure out the breathing. So it was cool to to see somebody come in and try something new, and it kind of fixes some things because he'd said he mentioned like talking about trying to get his squat up, and the safety bar squat for us is a really really fun tool. Yeah, it fucking teaches you how to like lock your upper back in. And we watch guys all the time that are like, oh, this thing is great, and then all of a sudden it just like tackles you over, and you're like, oh, yeah, it's awesome. And then when you go back to squat with a straight bar, all of a sudden you understand about how to like create stability in that upper torso. But then that's this is this is a good example of how of how we like to work. Because mm-hmm. we're, we're a scientific company, you know, and everyone knows in science, you know, the best science comes out of the way you work with research groups. But you should never forget that that research ex- extends into the science of training itself with, with real athletes. Mm-hmm. So our, our, you know, being able to train with you guys, you know, teaches us as much as if we go to a, you know, a research group and, you know, they tell us what's going on in the Petri dish. You know, it's, it's really important to know that the balance of those two elements because if you get one, if you get one wrong, you essentially build a product that's no good, mm-hmm. uh, and that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to make sure that everyone understands. Look, listen, you know, we're working with the best people, the best, the best people in training, the best people in science, um, and that's how we've built the best product. And you know, uh, and it's 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 uh, yeah yeah that's where we are. No, I mean, it, uh, you know, you made a great comment earlier that uh, I, I literally we went on. I want to come back to. Uh, and we, we've known this. I mean, obviously, we understand the physiology, how it would work with athletes and the science behind it. But at the end of the day, there's anecdotal things that you come across Absolutely. that you notice that almost are almost more insightful. Totally uh, you know, and that to me is, you know, and even though, you know, observation isn't necessarily science, yeah. it's just kind of observing yeah. some of the, the biggest breakthroughs that we've ever seen in training, just watching people do things, That's totally you know, where all of a sudden you ask somebody to do something and they can't do it. And you're like, wait a minute. And then all of a sudden you fix it yeah. and they're able to do other things. Absolutely. I mean, you know, 
Uh, so one of one of my biggest frustrations in fitness has always been how you know people people like to stand up and say there's no evidence there's no evidence for that so you'll get someone with a load of training experience that'll stand up and say i found this works and you'll have all of these academics saying oh there's no evidence for that well don't you think that's an easy way to create yourself as an expert it is i always think people do that that want to be experts it's like well there's no evidence for that and 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 the the thing that frustrates me is uh if you think is rather than saying there's no evidence for it what you should be doing is you should be going to these people and saying that's interesting I wonder if there's a way that we can study that to find out if, if you're mm-hmm. right, which is what we've always done. Yeah. I'll give you a good, a good story. Um, this is, it's not fitness related, but just uh, you know, an example of why this is so important. Um, if you go back to, I think it's like the early 1900s, uh, where you know, the, the number of babies that were born at birth, uh, sorry, that died at birth was, was huge. So you know, babies would be born, they'd get infections, uh, the mothers would get infections, you know, and, and they would die. And, uh, you know, you'd have hospitals where you just, you know, you'd have days where pretty much, you know, every baby being born was dying or every mother be, you know, giving birth was dying. And then all of a sudden, one day, they noticed that there was a, there was a doctor who was working who he wasn't getting the same level of, of death rates among babies and among uh, the delivering mothers. So, um, so, you know, someone you know, just basically just looked at what he was doing and compared what he was doing to what other people were doing. And the one thing he was doing differently between each delivery, he was washing his hands. Hmm. That's the thing he was doing differently. And so, so if someone, if someone back then, if the, the, and, and the, problem, the thing is, if the mentality of what happens in fitness at the moment, and it's very frustrating, but the mentality of what happens is that if that was if that was today, if someone had said, "Oh, I wash my hands between birth, between babies being born, and that's why I've got higher success rates," mm-hmm. you'd have everyone standing up saying, "But there's no evidence of that." And that's what annoys me about. That's what really annoys me, and it annoys us is that if you've got somebody who's big and muscular, and they say, "This helped me build muscle." It probably did, right? So don't right. tell them. Don't tell them the wrong. <laughs> uh, in, uh, in, I think it was 1991 or 1992. Uh, the old power that, that trained me uh, came. Uh, we showed up and he gave us these uh, brown boxes like that. Yeah. They were full of uh, white label uh, bottles. Yeah, this white powder. Yeah, and he was like, uh, he like gives it to us and like you know, he's like, hey, I want you to try this. This is going to be a new product. We're going to mm-hmm. that's going to come out, and it's uh, it's going to be it's going to revolutionize the supplements. Yeah, and we were like, well, what is it? He's like, it's called creatine. And so he told us, he's like, hey, take uh, X amount of teaspoons. I want you to do this, yep. this, and this. And so I started taking creatine pretty much every single day since I was about 14 or 15 years old. Yeah. Yeah. And, all, and I, I remember uh, we got bigger, we got stronger. I mean, you look at it, I and mean, he, he talked about ATP, subalimization, all this stuff, and everything. And then there was this huge, uh, you know, people found it. It was like this great deal. And then all of a sudden, people started relating it to hamstring pulls, which I never saw a hamstring pull. And I've taken it for all, you know, and then it was kidney problems, all this other stuff, and all these big problems. Then all of a sudden, it was for about 10 years, it was taboo. Mm-hmm. And even on my site, people would ask me, and I'm like, the fact that you're not taking creatine just shows how uneducated you are, that uh, I think everybody should be taking creatine. And at some point, um, you know, in the future, they will give every single person creatine every single day. It's going to help neurological. It's going to do all these things. Now, all of a sudden, here we are 20 plus years later, uh, and... It's finally coming back, and people are like, if you're not taking creatine, you're behind the curve. I mean, for everybody, for my mom, for everybody in terms of, like, brain health, and they're starting to see the longer, uh, you know, benefits of this. Yeah. 
And, uh, you know, and it just because some strength coach said it pulled hamstrings completely derailed that. And then they made like 8,000 different variations of it when the original one was better because it needed ways to keep selling it. So I think one of of the, one of the challenges with creatine uh, historically has been that the pharma companies didn't own the products. Um, and therefore, because the big pharma companies didn't own the products, it was very difficult commercially, you know, for it to be pushed in terms of health, because why would any pharma company, uh, yeah. you know, want to be, want, you know, and bear in mind the pharma companies do rule the roost. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, why would they want things like creatine to be, you know, too popularized? I totally agree that there's um, it, it, a lot of emerging evidence about creatine, yeah. uh, reduced uh, symptoms of, you know, Alzheimer's, dementia, um, you know, uh, well, and, and it's so easy. It's easy to get. It's easy to take. And for some, I mean, I still to this day get emails from people asking me about creatine, mm-hmm. and I'm like, I beat that like a dead fucking horse like years ago. Yeah. And uh, you know, people are like, well, do you have any research? I'm like, I am probably the lo- the, the single longest continuous creatine user mm-hmm. uh, that I've ever been associated with. I mean, dude, we were one of the first people to get it in like '91, '92. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've taken it pretty much yeah. every single day for yeah. since then. What's that? Over twenty four years. Yeah, twenty four years. Yeah. And um, have you know? Like, so I'm, I'm always like, dude, um, yeah. you know. I mean, yeah. it, it did pretty well for me, and we started mm-hmm. taking it at a young age. Yeah. That, you know, didn't have something that maybe did. You know, was it able to enhance some genes that helped me for athletic performance? Yeah. Maybe because uh, I would not have thought I was a good football player when I was younger. When I was, you know, you talk about the more gifted athletes. Yeah. I think I was. Uh, more uncoordinated when I was yeah, younger, and yeah. then all of a sudden, when like my size and strength and everything yeah. caught up, I was good. Yeah. But it wasn't until I was older. Yeah, yeah. So maybe that was a key factor. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, anything that enhances, um, you know, sort of, um, you know, cell energy, um, and and ultimately, you know, with saturated levels of creatine, uh, you know, you're more likely to be able to uh, replenish ATP, yep. um, or the you know the, the the balance between ATP and ADP. Um, so yeah, I mean. There's, there's a, you know, there's a lot of research that's been done on creatine, um, and uh, it's it's one of the ones that it's very difficult to, you know, to to to, to say that there's no benefit because again, for certain people, there's masses of benefit for for creatine, um, and I think there's a there's a, there's a handful of supplements where there will be people that there will be a benefit. Um, and genetically, that, that there's reasons why people would benefit. The other one uh, that's very easy to take is uh, vitamin D. Uh, that's the one that just to this day kind of blows my mind. I mean, this research just came out the other day about how they linked uh, low vitamin D levels to MS. Yeah. And um, pretty amazing. And I know there's some genetic traits for vitamin D absorption. There is uh, the VDR, VDR gene. We actually test for the VDR gene. It's just we haven't published the results yet. But yeah. So at some point, that will become available. Yeah, absolutely. Probably awesome. later, later this year. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, vitamin, vitamin D3 is, um, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's another very, very interesting, you know, very interesting area of, of research. Well, uh, especially before, for muscle growth and performance, yeah. uh, it's next to impossible to put on muscle with low vitamin D levels. So like that's, I mean, and that's, and that's related to testosterone. Yeah. And that's uh, yeah. Before we cover everything there is to know, I mean, Callie, Bob and Tex are getting tested and I think, uh, as is tradition, we've gone over for an hour uh, than we had planned. So we're on our second hour of podcasting. But let's wrap it up now. Okay. And then uh, and then why don't we try and reconnect in a few yeah. weeks, yeah. maybe September, October, sounds something good. like that, once these guys get their results back yeah. and then, uh, and just continue the conversation. Yeah, sounds good to me. Yeah, it's great. But, Sorry, guys, uh, we're talking so long. Yeah. Uh, Kelly, anything else? 
Uh, no, I mean, that's, I mean, I think we have uh, a lot of valid information there and I'm excited to, uh, get my, uh, saliva submitted <laughs> and, <laughs> and then get my results. But, um, Dan, thanks so, so much for, um, it's obvious the the one thing too, it's obvious that I can glean from this conversation is that you actually have a passion for what you're doing and it's oh, not, yeah. you know, this isn't, uh, this isn't just one of those, like, add-on type of procedures that you can do to like, you know, optimize your performance. It's actually some pretty, pretty fascinating shit that can change people's lives. Not only, like you said, your performance base, but not only performance base, but, but health base as well. So I think that there is something for everyone in that. Well, Kelly, you know, part of the deal and, uh, you know, we coined it as that empower your performance. And what I always kind of looked for is, you know, not only creating a training system, uh, you know, and being able to kind of put this thing together that not only, um, cashes in and actually reaps the benefits that people want. Like if you do the training, you know, all these things kind of happen, but start looking for, uh, you know, other ancillary type items that increase and empower the performance. Like Dan, obviously being, you know, when the, when we connected, I mean, I was like, dude, this is, this is phenomenal. This is exactly what we're looking for because it allows us to take what we do to the next level. Exactly. You know, just like when uh, we started working with Compex. And the fact that here now we have, you know, EMS units where we can recruit more muscle or more motor units, which translates into better training and being able to balance injuries. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we just don't arbitrarily, and you guys know this, I'm fucking so so about this enough, but we don't arbitrarily just offer out bullshit. You know, I think other people are like, oh, hey, so-and-so is going to give me a code. Great. Let's fucking push this thing out. Every day we battle the bullshit. Yeah. And we've had, I mean, we get approached by so much fucking worthless shit that I'm like, dude, I, uh, one, I wouldn't do this Two, I have no credibility to do this. And yeah. three, it just sucks. Yeah. But like you come across things like, you know, fitness genes where you're like, dude, this, yeah. uh, this makes sense. Yeah. I understand how to use it. We're going to test it. We're going to run it. And then hopefully at some point, you know, we bring people in and it just gives us another layer layer to get more, you know, to empower performance. Yeah. Power yeah. performance at that granular level, you know, a little bit more minutia. So it's very exciting. Absolutely. Thank you very much for coming on. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks so much, guys. Yeah. Thank you, Dan. And, uh, we'll talk to you next time. Perfect. All right. Bye. Bye. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Get your genetic testing done by visiting fitnessgenes.com, and for just about $100, you'll be able to stop making assumptions about your diet and training and start trusting the science. You can find co-founder of Fitness Genes, Dr. Dan Reardon, on Instagram at Dan Reardon, or by following Fitness Genes on Facebook. We're looking forward to having Dr. Dan on again as the rest of our results trickle in. Stay tuned to next week when we welcome Rob Miller. He's the author and designer of the popular map of athletic performance. Until next time, bye!